forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and very hot shower taker. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink. Um, and I am scattered, baby. Scattered, scattered. What do you mean you take a hot shower? That blew my mind away for a second. What are you talking about? People take hot showers all the time. But you take like one that scalds you? Well, honestly, sometimes my shower is too hot. And then it takes forever to get less hot. And I have to sort of just like dance around it for a while like wait, and like keep lowering it, keep lowering it. But yeah, I probably take a, a shower at a degree that some people might say, ouch. Uh, so because if I do that, eczema, eczema everywhere, skin peels. I can't not do it. I'll turn into a reptile, Allison. If I take too hot of a shower, and I love hot, but I take too hot of a shower, I'm peeling pieces of my face off. I'm peeling. Look, at, I'm peeling right now. I didn't do anything. My hands are very in very bad shape right now. <laughs> you know what? Because the egg, because hot is like bad for your arthritis or something, your joints. I'm not a doctor, but I think hot water is. Oh no, no, my hands skid, not my not my <laughs> movement of my hands. <laughs> Your joints are creaking from the hot shower. I have very dry hands. (laughs) It doesn't like scald you. Your skin's so porcelain. You're not like bright red when you get out like a lobster. No, I am. Absolutely. (laughs) You're like, I'm doing this thing that is actively harming me. Will I hear other opinions? No, I will not. Well, I don't understand. How do you take a cold? Like I couldn't take a cold shower. Maybe I could do like less extremely hot. It's not extremely hot. You're like, now you're backtracking. You're like, now, I'm not, I was like, is that healthy? And you're like, no, no, it's fine. We're going to get like people writing in being like, Allison, no. It's not scalding. It's just like a hot shower. Like people take hot showers. It's okay. I'm okay. Do you wear sunscreen? Not in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. <laughs> I hate you. Um, okay, wait. So this is just between us. A variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. I am so excited. Our guest today on the show is Suchin Pak, who uh, is a journalist and a producer and a host of a podcast called Add to Cart. Um, But she is also like a staple icon legend of my childhood. Like I watched MTV News. She was a VJ. Again, I don't even know how to start. She explains it a little bit. But basically, for the children, MTV used to show music videos, and there was no YouTube. So if you wanted to see a music video, you had to wait for it to play on television. You had to make sure that you were there to catch it. You had to either VHS tape it, maybe, if you were lucky. And so there was this show called TRL, and every day you would call in and try to get your band your favorite band's video to up the charts from 10 to 1 to be the winner of that TRL or whatever and there were all these VJs that were like basically like they they either did that show or they did like some game show or whatever but there were ones that did news and Suchin was one that was like young hip woman who like told you the news and it was just so cool and I remember being a kid being like I want to be her so bad she's making the news look look so cool and and I just think like 
I'm just so excited to have her because I think like she might be my root of like loving journalism. And our conversation is, I think, so illuminating and she shared so much with us. And I, I feel just honored that that we got to even have that conversation. And then the fact that we get to share it with everybody, even better. She was like the first Asian woman, VJ, like one of the only Asian women on on MTV. And um, so she talks a lot about what's been going on lately with like Stop Asian Hate and um, the last year in the ways in which like it's become more visible what we've always needed to be better allies to the Asian community. And um, I just think like having her on, she's just so she just put everything so beautifully and is so brilliant and Um, I hope that this is illuminating for everybody listening. So stick around. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have the incredible journalist, producer, host of the Add to Cart podcast, Suchin Pak. Uh, guys, I could not be a bigger fan of this person. <laughs> we hosted the podcast Upfronts together. Um, and when that was announced, I was sweating because I love her so much. Hello, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness. I <laughs> there was a mutual sweat. Um, <laughs> Gabby does it. I you wouldn't know this and I don't expect you to, but I did a tiny little podcast uh about finances and money and it was just always like, listen, we can't do what Gabby does. She's just like <laughs> the bestest of the bestest. But let's just if we can pick off some of her scraps and oh, just make wow. it through. Uh, so from afar, I have admired you, but we have worked together, the podcast up front, uh-huh. you and I, live. So the way that you started was being a VJ on MTV. Yeah, Our producer is 20. So I just yes. spent, while we were waiting for you to get here, explained like, what, what all of that was. Wait, uh, did she know what MTV was? Yes. Yes, she knew and MTV. She, and she, did she know what a VJ was? Nope. No, I don't think ah! so. <laughs> Okay, I sounded like a, a grandma. Like five Wait, minutes ago, is... I sounded like a grandma explaining like the the phonograph. Like it was not good. Okay, so, so, Sushin. I can't what, wait to hear your explanation. Please, no, please explain what, so you started out as a VJ on MTV for our listeners. I, and I'm, it's going to break my heart how many don't know. Can you tell us what that is? Well, it's funny because I want to say a VJ is unlike a DJ, but that also may not be a reference that, that they know because I don't know if radios and you know what I mean? Like people listen to, to radio hosts. Now we listen to podcasts. It's a totally different medium. So I was a reporter for MTV News. Uh, a long time ago, MTV actually had a, a news division, and that's what we did. We did news for the young people, and then Twitter killed my job. Okay, so so MTV was like a huge network. It had like music videos, music television. Isn't this remarkable? Okay, and it had like all this stuff, and, mm-hmm. and it had a news segment, yes. like news section, which yeah. was like— Um, to me as like a young kid was so cool. I ended up studying journalism, but like you guys were like gods to me. You guys were like so cool because you were like making it look cool to be smart. 
You were like, you would come on and like do serious journalism, but you'd also do like really serious sit down interviews with like Britney Spears. It made it cool to be like a nerd, I guess, like this side of MTV. So but like, okay, so how did you become a VJ? So let's see, I started doing this when I was 16. So I've been doing this a long time, almost 30 years. And it was really by chance, I hosted a teen talk show. It was like a local teen talk show. And uh, we talk about like cool shoes and and teen pregnancy. And then coming up next, the, you know what I mean? It was like the cheesiest. It was called Straight Talk in (laughs) Teens. So I did that through when I was in high school, not because I was an extrovert or wanted to be on camera. I think it just something, you know, one of those things that you hear people say all the time. I don't know. Somebody came up to me one day and was like, do you want to do this thing? And I was like, do you pay money? And they were like, yes. And I was like, great. And I showed up. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I loved it. It was like public access. No, it was for KGO TV, which is the ABC, like local news affiliate. <laughs> Mm. Again, all of this stuff, people are like, news, local news. I mean, then, you know, you got your TV. uh, If you had some money, you had cable. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't like what it is today, right? Right. Most of the time, you got it from your local, you know, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock news. And so we did this little Saturday morning show. And then that led to a whole bunch of other stuff that then led me to MTV. So it happened by chance. But once I got here, I was like, I'm going to milk this for every (laughs) single second, you know, because who's going to give that chance to a immigrant gal from, you know, the East Bay? Like, you don't get those opportunities ever. I don't think anyone had ever done anything like that when I was No, you guys up. were huge celebrities because there was only like one channel. And so you guys were like big yes. celebrities. So, okay. So, but you particularly, you were like one of the few women and you were like basically the only Asian woman that they had. Yeah. No, they, yeah. Eventually they went on to have other VJs, but I was the only, yes, Asian female, definitely in the news department. And I would say I probably had been there before um, some of the other fantastic uh, Asian American VJs came after me. In March of this year, you kind of spoke out about an incident that had happened while while you were a VJ. Can you kind of explain what happened and why you decided to talk about it? Yeah, you know, everything that happened in the past month is in the context of this past 14 plus months, right, mm-hmm. that we've all been here. So the pandemic, Black Lives, you know, the election, then, you know, the terrible rise in crime against Asian Americans. And so that's the context of it, because mm-hmm. this is a story that that had this happened to me, you know, 20 years ago, you know, and I had just kind of held the story and never really shared it. I would even say to a degree that I'm not even sure that it was important to me, you know, like personally, like, oh. It was it, you know, the worst thing that, you know what I mean? It was something that I myself hadn't processed up until this year, which is a long time. And I think trauma sometimes works that way where you put it away until you're really ready to deal with it. And hopefully you get there, but that's not always the case. And I think I would have just kind of sailed along for a pretty long time. And then um, the shootings in Atlanta happened. And I woke up the next morning and just you know, just a zombie and gutted. 
and opened my feed and I saw this random post. I don't even know who it was from. Um, someone I'm sure posted something, something, and I was just reading and taking it all in. And there was a post from a young woman who said something to the effect of like, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how many times I have to walk down the street and some guy says me sucky, sucky, you know, love you long time. And I hadn't thought about that moment. I, I don't, I don't even know how long ago. I, I can't even remember. And it just was like one of those matrix moments that comes out of the blue and everything gets into really sharp focus. And I had realized that something that happened to me 20 years ago or so at MTV, very similarly, had really shaped um, this, you know, this sort of crisis of identity that I had been carrying for so many years. And it didn't, I hadn't even connected the dots till that moment, you wow. know? And so I, you know, got up and I wanted to share something. I was so moved. Everybody was sharing their stories. And I, as an Asian American, have an, and and someone covering the news for so long. I have never, ever, ever seen this. I have never seen this community come together, be so outspoken and so vocal about pain and sadness and about racism. It's just, mm -hmm. it just, you know, if it happened, you just swallowed it and you smiled and you nodded and you just hoped that it would pass you by. And, you know, um, and that's just, I think, ingrained in our culture. And I woke up to a much different reality that morning. And I shared the story just to share, because I think that's also part of the healing. And I had remembered a time, you know, years ago when I was in the newsroom and uh, one of my colleagues um, said something racist and um, I refused to come into work. And it was a pretty protracted, you know, back and forth of, of, of the powers that be asking me to sort of accept, move on, forgive, whatever version of it that, you know, was happening. And I didn't. And then I went on with my life. I continued at MTV. That person wasn't there. I thought, well, that's it. I don't have to deal with that again. I don't need to open that box. You know what I mean? Problem mm -hmm. solved. And then, yeah, I woke up a few months ago and I realized, oh shit, problem not solved. <laughs> No, problem. for sure. <laughs> yeah. And problem's still happening. Yeah. And I kind of need to to wake up to it. And I and I did sort of wake up in a way. And I'm I have mixed emotions about it, but on really good days, I'm I'm happy that I shared. What was that like to, you know, be a young woman and and sort of be like, this wasn't okay? Like what kind of pushback did you receive? I talk about this it, it, and I think that to hear someone of my age or any age older saying, you don't understand back then, but it was. It, nobody mm -hmm. talked about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I never felt that I, I never felt that I was at a disadvantage because I was there and I was so lucky to be there. Like, how mm -hmm. could I feel ever that, that there was, there was discrimination, that there were definitely gender, you know, roles being carved out, that I wasn't a part of that conversation, definitely conversations about my race that um, weren't acceptable. How could I have negative feelings about that? I have a dream job, like, mm -hmm. or, you know, so that kept me, it keeps a lot of people 
really quiet and it keeps a lot of people that are doing very well quiet, you know, seemingly mm-hmm. well because it's like we're just lucky to be here, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So that I think for a long time and and so I never really spoke about it and, and I think um, – you know, something I, I shared and I, I continue to share is is that I think we have one version of what a hero and courage looks like, you know, and it and it can look like that. It can look at mm-hmm. the front of the march. It can look behind the microphone. It can look just so powerful. But there's another version of courage that is sick to your stomach, um, quivering, like vomiting, so scared, crying all the time. That was my version of who I was, you know? And it isn't until now that I look back that sitting with those emotions and still holding that and not returning to that environment, even though every part of me wanted to just accept it and move on and it would be so much easier and, and you know, less painful, I didn't. It didn't look like courage because there was no like grand speech, you know, that I walked in (laughs) and I was like, yeah, you know, I slinked back in. I was even nicer and more polite than ever because I was like, whoa, they really did me a favor, right? I mean, they let me back in here, you know, after I kind of said something, you know, uh, a little negative, you know what I'm saying? Like that mentality, Mm -hmm. it takes such a long time. I think as people of color, but as women, as anyone that feels like you're just always outnumbered and always mm-hmm. underwater. Um, it never, it doesn't ever feel like you're being courageous. But I think acknowledging and sitting with emotions for me is a really big act of courage. Did you feel at the time becoming so visible so quickly that you was there pressure of like, I'm a role model, like I am the Asian woman on this channel? I don't know. I mean, you know, we talk about, again, the context of it is, is that there was no social media. Like Mm -hmm. I had, you did the news and you had no idea if anybody was watching, nobody, you had no way of communicating. It was just, you did it in a black box. You walked out. That was, you know what I mean? There was no, nothing. So it wasn't, so I don't know that I felt that pressure but I, but I think I knew innately whether it was Asian American, whether it was as a woman, whether it was as a young person, because like you said, Gabby, I think that news anchors and journalists, they, I mean, they've been here since the beginning of any type of media, but it was something about MTV where like you could wear a tank top and jeans and still be covering, you know, the presidential debates. Like it was right. something about a celebration and a legitimizing of youth culture mm-hmm. that that felt very, very different at MTV. And so, you know, when I covered presidential debates next to the folks at CBS and ABC, you know, you're always like, you know, put on a, <laughs> put on a button up shirt and get in with the adults. But, you know, you had to like fight in that, you know, pit because nobody was going to give you that kind of respect or credit. So I knew that to some degree, just because of the nature of who I am, that I knew that I didn't want to be an embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if I felt that pressure. And certainly no male VJs were ever embarrassments. Or rock stars, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is an inside joke for us olds. Mm-hmm. When did you start, like, realizing that? Or, like, was there a time where, like, young, like, kids came up or young people were, like, you, you've inspired me? Or, like, was there, when did you start to realize, like, oh, I, 
am making a sort of a difference here? I think for me, it was speaking on college campuses, which mm-hmm. I would do every so often. You know, I mean, you would get these requests and especially requests from campuses where there wasn't a very big Asian population, like small mm-hmm. colleges in the middle of, you know, the Midwest or in the South or places where being Asian, you know, mm-hmm. was, it, it felt very isolating and dangerous, in fact. And so I think those kinds of trips really opened my eyes. I grew up in the Bay Area. Like, mm-hmm. there were no white people in my school. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I was the, you know, I knew, of course, you know, outside of the the bubble that I was in that um, that the world didn't look like that. But I, so I think going to these places and really talking to kids who grew up in such a different environment. And, and I say, I always, I'm like a born again Korean where like I took that for granted until I went out into the real world and realized like not everyone was Asian. And then suddenly I became like super Asian, you know? <laughs> Like before that, I didn't have to go out to seek an Asian community. Like that's just where I was living in in the Bay Area. It's so diverse and especially where I grew up. So it wasn't until later when I was living in New York and on my own, I was like, oh my God, where are my Asian people? Like I got to go out. (laughs) I got to, I got to start looking for these um, folks. So I think, um, yeah, I, I think it, it was really then, but I, again, this is really dating and you guys will just have to Google this and trust me. Um, There was a movie called Better Luck Tomorrow. I would be surprised if either one of you even know what I'm talking about. But there was a movie, Better Luck Tomorrow, and it was the first time I had ever seen an an all Asian American cast before Crazy Rich Asians that didn't have accents. It wasn't about them being Asian. It was just them being crazy young people. And it was this like fantastic, like thriller movie. And I just remember sitting in the theater looking at being like, I didn't even know I was missing that. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you even, I was like, wait, that's such a mind. (laughs) Fuck. You know, like, how do you even know you're missing something in your life? Until the moment you see it, you realize there was a hole there that like mm-hmm. you had even never even knew. Like you had no access to even that part of who you are. So I think it was like a combination of all those things. I always have gravitated towards telling stories, you know, for this community, but really for any community that feels very voiceless because I that's so relatable, I think, to me and to us and, and all of that. Do you feel like America didn't understand this history of of racism against Asians until like two weeks ago? (laughs) I think Asian Americans didn't understand the history of racism until two weeks ago. And even that I, I've been saying that I feel like I'm concurrently in a American studies, like 101, you know, college course and group therapy at the same time. Like, where are we taught this? Unless Mm -hmm. you actively seek it out. I mean, not in high school. I can't imagine there are many high schools that even offer any other type of history than the history, the U.S. history that we're offered. But unless you're actively seeking it out, where are you going to get, where are you going to learn this? In this country, even as Asians. Like, I we don't even tell talk you, about internment camps. They, no. won't, they don't even teach it. No. They I, and it's, it, so it's, it's an erasure of it mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Again, how do you know you're missing that? Until suddenly you look around and you're like, they're attacking 
Asian people on the street, my parents can't leave the house. What the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And then you sort of start to wake up to this one morning. And it, like you said, it feels like a few weeks ago that mm-hmm. I'm still piecing the stuff together. So no, but I'm right there, right, right there with, you know, full of ignorance. And I have no idea what our place in history has been. And, and up until this point, I didn't think it mattered. Why? Because I think that it goes back to that really insidious thing of the power of visibility and then the, the inverse of that, of how powerless and how, how blind you are when you are, when your history is invisible. I, I don't think that I even understood that there could be an impact in my life today simply because I was so unaware of the history of my community in this country. It just was never confronted that way. You know, yeah. it just, how do you even, where do you, you know, you don't wake up, that, that, kind, of, that kind of knowing, mm-hmm. it's very rare to just wake up one day. It's something mm-hmm. has to like, you know, break that bubble, you know, that sort of I mean, do you think right now is the reckoning? I feel like we're, you know, we were talking about this, all of a sudden it changed. People are talking about anti-Asian hate and, and requesting people to make themselves known as allies and things like that. Like you, you had mentioned that you hadn't ever seen anything like that really. Like are you saying, do you think this is like a big reckoning? Certainly it's the biggest reckoning I've ever seen. If you talk to you know, the generation before us that lived through the civil rights movement and Vincent Chin and, and you know, they have been fighting for this and talking about this conversation for decades. Mm-hmm. But for me, 100%, this feels like a reckoning that I've never, ever seen before. And it's a reckoning, I think, that's not, not it's, it's, it's in the context, like I said, of what mm-hmm. has been going on for all of us. I think it took, took all of those different moments. Mm-hmm. It took the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It took, Black Lives, it took the election, it took all of those moments Mm -hmm. for us to have this reckoning. And in some ways, I would argue, for me at least, it had to be this major because Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot, it's really, really easy to be comfortable. Asian people are erased constantly. I mean, you're either lumped in with white people or not thought about at all or, you know, we had some stuff on this show about the idea of the words black and brown and how that could exclude South Asian people mm-hmm. um, because they are brown and also Asian. And what about people who are biracial and all these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it, it felt like it felt like what like what you said, like about MTV, where you're like, I'm just grateful to be to be yeah, here. Like, I'm just grateful right. to be here. And if that feels like such an app metaphor for like, oh, we're just happy to be here. Like, please don't please don't bother us. Yes. There's, there was so much violence, even just violent rhetoric, even just as soon as Trump started with China virus, I was like, oh, here we fucking go. Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. And it had to be, like you said, it had to be that, that huge. Have you seen like, were you surprised by how much like people started coming forward with stories the way, I mean, you did, but were you surprised that like, it just seemed to like overflow? I think that, um, in some ways, I was really surprised in the sense that I think that, you know, I think a lot of us, it's very easy to benefit from the model minority myth. Right. It's a double-edged sword, right? It's like a gilded cage. You sort of are like, well, it's not so bad, 
you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if we just keep our mouth shut and never connect to who we are and don't feel pain and never express it, if we just walk quietly, you know? Like, is it so bad? Is it so terrible? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that diminishing, um, and I call it just like the complete gaslighting of your own psychic well-being mm-hmm. over years and years and generations and then passed down and passed down. I think one of the things that I'm not surprised, and I don't know that it's uniquely Asian American, but I think there is this feeling when you come to this country and you don't speak the language and your parents have never spoken the language and are foreigners, not even an attempt you know, to include them in the conversation of what it means to be, you know, American in this country. You know, you grow up at such a young age protecting your parents. You know, first you translate the utility bills and then you help them, you know, go to the DMV and get whatever they need to get. And you 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 become the conduit to the outside world and they rely on you and they they there's a protection there and there's a safety and a security there. And then suddenly that our elders were being attacked in the street. It's just such a profound, profound sadness and rage. And I think that um, I read somewhere and, and, and someone had said this and it just like hit me in my gut, which is like, I've watched my parents just quietly endure for mm-hmm. so many years just being like, just let me, let me survive here in the shadows. I'm okay. I'm okay here. Silently, you know, enduring all of this. And then to say that that, that population is the, is the target felt just unbelievably egregious. Like it just felt like it, it, like how, how mm-hmm. already these people are so marginalized. They are self-marginalizing because they don't want to take out space because they're so afraid. And yet here we are trying to protect them and unsuccessfully, and it's still going on. And so it was something about that particular element of it, that this rage and this outpouring, and that I'm not surprised about. Mm-hmm. Because I think it, if it had happened to a different segment of our population other than our parents and our grandparents, I don't know that the f- that that it would have ignited in the way that it did. But it's something about that, that relationship that is so, especially in the Asian community, so, so um, not only va- sacred mm-hmm. that it felt, uh, it, it, you couldn't look away from it. And that... I am guilty of that. I am the person that I, if you give me a small little hole where I can be a little bit comfortable, I will try to fit into that hole. Like Mm -hmm. I, I have a very difficult time with these overwhelming quote unquote big emotions, you know? And so there just was nowhere to hide when Mm -hmm. that happened, you know? Yeah. That's beautifully put. Can you explain a little bit about the model minority myth and what that is and what that means? Well, the model minority myth is is that um, that Asians are they do really well. You know, they get into Ivy League. In fact, some would say the uh, you know median income of an Asian family is out out you know surpasses those of the average white family. Like, where he this is this is uh, this is the model minority myth is for the um, the white patriarchy to say to other communities of color, well, they did it. 
Look mm-hmm. at how the great they're doing. Must mm-hmm. be something with you because they came over here, you know, mm-hmm. during hardship. They came over and look at them. This is what yeah. the model minority myth has been created. It's insidious because it feels like a compliment. And it's insidious right. because it feels like you should be grateful that somebody would um, do. But what it is, is it's, it's, it's a way to silence not only us, yeah. but all communities of color. Yeah. Because I, I think that we, we internalize that. And then we disassociate ourselves from other people of color. Yep. You know? It's proximity to whiteness. It's rewarding proximity yes, to whiteness. That's right. How close to whiteness can you get? And when yep. you get super close to whiteness, you're rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than, and then it causes like internalized racism. Yes. Where you're like, you know, and I think uh, Jews lightly have this as well, where it's yeah. like the compliment is, well, Jews run Hollywood. Jews run the yeah. banks. Like that's a compliment. Uh, and I even have to sometimes stop myself from taking it as one. (laughs) Yeah. Taking it as one being like, thank you. We do run Hollywood, you know, like, um, it's hard even as a successful person, you know, like when someone says like, even to, to me, like, oh, like you're Jewish successful person, you know, or like, I'm sure they're like, oh, well, you're very successful. You know, your, your parents were immigrants. They came from another country, but, but you were successful. You Mm. thrived, you know? Mm. So the question is, is sort of like, how, how do I navigate that and dismantle that even mm-hmm. for myself? Yeah. Um, and also my husband is, is Jewish, white, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really big questions that, that, that we, I ask myself, I look at my kids who are biracial you know, like, I, I don't know what life is going to, I don't, I have no idea how to contextualize how they're going to grow up. They're so different already just mm-hmm. by, you know what I mean? Just by being born into this particular moment in my husband and my history, they're so different. But then on top of that, you add not only the social structure and the class structure, but the race on top of that, mm-hmm. you know, it feels a little bit like uh, parenting has been such an out-of-body experience, even on that level, you know? Um, so I think that for me at least, um, and and because I have always turned to, it, it's what I do for a living, It, but it would be something that is just in my nature. I was always that the, the, the kid with the book at the dinner table kind of a person. For me, it's been taking the class. It's been reading. It's been mm-hmm. engaging in conversations in places where I'm getting news that I've never even considered before. Um, all of those things help me see the blind spots are so huge, even in my understanding of who I am, even in mm-hmm. my participation of my own perpetuation of the model minority myth for myself, but also for my friends and how, like you said, how I talk about it. I know, me too. How do you do that? How do you do that without first having, to me, I'm so, so grateful for these Asian writers that have been able to articulate it in a way that I, it just, you know, Mm -hmm. so, so for me, it starts there. It starts with that learning. It starts with the very simple task of approaching it like, okay, Let's do the work. Let's figure out what is the history of this and why does mm-hmm. it matter? And so when you start to see other people articulate it, then you're like, I can build on that. Mm-hmm. I can yeah. really start to see how that has been present in my life. So, 
you know, even just recently, you know, the book I'm that has blown my mind and and I would highly recommend for anyone interested in this subject is um, Minor Feelings. And that's it. There is no other book that needs to be read about the Asian American experience, in my opinion, in this current moment than that. Who is that by? So it's a book called Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. And this book didn't, I mean, it came out a while ago. I don't even, you know, it's new-ish, but it wasn't, I mean, it's been on my shelf, you know, kind of for a while. I picked it up. I was like, oh, this is so dense. I'm not sure I want to get into it. It's so sad. It's so dark. She's so angry. right? And then this year happened. And suddenly I picked it up and I was like, fuck yeah, like raging. <laughs> Do you know, isn't that interesting, yeah. right? Like people yeah. can recommend anything to you, but if you're not in that moment to receive, that's, then you're not in the moment. Mm. I don't care. I mean, I had that book on my shelf. I'm sure someone gifted it to me, you know, when it first came out and I was like, oh, this is so hard. Like, this isn't light reading. You know, I just mm-hmm. want to like go to bed. And then this year happens and I was like, what was that book? And I picked it up and I just sat there like shock therapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly just shocked that Mm -hmm. I could see my rage articulated in such a clear way. Mm -hmm. So I say that because that has helped me create language for myself that then I build onto and, Mm -hmm. and, and I take. But without that there, Without that first seed, and that is why it is so important we share our stories, and that is why it's so important that you guys continue to give space even in your place for others to share. Do you know what I mean? That sharing of the yeah, stories Yeah, we're not is that interesting. Just, we're not that interesting. We have other people lies, on. <laughs> lies. There's drama. There's intrigue. There's there's heartbreak. There's all of oh, it here. thank you. Yeah. I feel that way about queerness, just the history, yeah. just young people. That's right. Um, needing to understand how wronged we've been and how, uh, you know, the context for how much— I don't think they realized how hard it was in the past— and yeah. I I get the sense sometimes that they don't know that, like, HIV killed an entire generation. Like, yeah. you know, these things that it used to be illegal to wear uh, a piece, a, a not enough pieces of female clothing as yeah. a woman, like, in a, like, it's just, like, all these things that might seem, you know, so I think, like, this history, I mean, even the ways that Asian people have been portrayed in media for I mean, decades. I mean, how do you even start to undo that? Like, it's awful, you know? How do you undo Long Duck Dong? How how do you undo that? How? It's John Hughes. Like, it is Americana. It is is ingrained. Like, the movies we watch, the music Mm -hmm. we listen to, it is is ingrained in our Mm -hmm. conscious identity. And so when you take iconic and you say something is iconic because everybody shares this identity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is then rooted in such XXXX. Yeah. What? You know, like how, so yeah. Like how many white girls across America have uh, breakfast at Tiffany's posters without realizing how anti-Asian racist breakfast at Tiffany's was. How many posters did I have that? Exactly. Of that, even after watching the movie as a exactly. kid. Yeah. Even after. It wasn't until, you know, it's those kinds of things you, 
that's what I'm you saying. Don't even, yeah. I, I when I watched John Hughes movies and Long Duck Dong, I was like, that guy is hilarious. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kid on, uh, you know, uh, I'm so dating myself on, you know, Indiana Jones. You know, yeah. look at him. He's making inventions. Isn't yeah. that funny? Yeah. I watched it and laughed and internalized all of that. And so, right. you know, what happens to someone like me is because I get really nice. I'm quirky, but not weird. And sweet, but not, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I fall into that because I know that if I want to be invited to this party, I better have read the script. And yeah. the script is, if you're not going to be a, you know, a scientist or a doctor, then you could be a little quirky and a little bit funny. But Please don't come to the table with anger and rage and mm-hmm. indignation. Mm-hmm. Um, don't do that. You know, so right. this is this is sort of like what we're undoing. And I have mm-hmm. to say, as someone who is in their 40s, that it's the kids that are, you know, in their 20s and now growing up that have given me my voice. Yeah. Right? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like that's… Mm-hmm. What, right? This is where we are, right? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't find this. It wasn't, I, I don't think I would have ever really been as clear had someone not given me the language. And it just so happens to be probably someone who's like 19 and like <laughs> TikTok something. And then I saw it in an email, <laughs> you know, attachment because I don't, I don't have TikTok, but I get those emails sent to me all the time or someone texts it and I play it on my, on my browser and I'm like, oh my, oh my God. God, that's hilarious. But I benefit from that. I benefit from this generation that says, like, no, I, we may not know our history, but I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to take. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to take this. What do you think is, like, the the future of undoing all of this? You know, where do we go from here? I think the future of undoing all of this is so much simpler and smaller than, than um, maybe is sexy, you know? Mm. It's these conversations. I've never— have you ever had a conversation with an Asian American friend about their erasure and their fetishization and their I've never I've never had this. So I think until we develop a common language for this, it's the same thing that happened with me too. Now right. we sort of take it for granted. But right. we that language wasn't there. And if you don't have language, I think then, you know, they they say like the energy of a thought is one thing. And then it gets so stronger when you vocalize it. And then not until that's vocalized that you act on it. But all those, that has to happen in that order. So the thinking, the vocalizing, and then the action, like that's a process. And so for us, I think a lot of us are in this vocalizing phase. And and this is a necessary phase to understand how the undoing will happen. Without Mm -hmm. this, if we skip to that, I think it it doesn't, it's not very meaningful. We come up with very shallow, shallow, um, you know, we'll just, we'll just, you know, put a little TV show on, on Netflix. Okay, there it is. There's the Asian American movement. Oh, we'll, we'll have a month. Hey, we get a whole month. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. great. You know, and, you know, so, but all of that, I think that this language that we're developing together and that you're free to ask those questions and I'm free to, you know, feel angry and vulnerable and and all of that within it and still feel like I'm invited to the party, you know? Mm-hmm. Like all of that has to happen first, I think, before we figure out what is the course of action that we'll take. I think that's so insightful and, you know, 
it's the pa- it's the power of, of sharing our stories, which you already touched on. Yeah. Um, and I feel really silly, but it's that time of the show where I ask if you want to switch from important discourse to playing a game show. A hundred percent, always. <laughs> My answer will always be yes. Let's do it. She was on MTV. She went from the news to say what karaoke. It's all yeah, over the all place. All over the place. High brow, low brow. We got it. <laughs> oh. I'm so obsessed with you. You're so, this, it was just, you just said everything so beautifully. Oh. So stick around after the break. We'll be playing hypotheticals. Oh. Ooh. 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 I know this game. <laughs> Between us, it is time for hypotheticals. This is a game where you and Gabby are my contestants. I give you a series of hypothetical situations. Gabby, you don't know what the situation. I don't know are, what they right? are. Yeah. No, I don't no, know what they are. Oh my god, I I, I love this game. I'm so excited. <laughs> Gabby, you and I sort of played a version of this when we, we last played a met. version of it at the upfronts. Yeah, and I was oh, so yeah. bummed that I didn't. I, I like I wanted to chime in with what I would do. So I'm very excited now to be on the other side of the game, the game board. Oh, this oh, is yeah. so exciting. No one ever wants to play this, so I'm very happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we will start with America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of nine years hooked up with the head of the top preschool in your area in order to ensure that your child would be admitted. It meant nothing to them, but they do take early education extremely seriously. Would you stay with this cheater? All clothes stayed on other than the head of the preschool's pants. Wait, okay. the head of the preschool's <laughs> pants? Oh, okay, got it. Not the head of the pants, but the head no. of the preschool's yes. pants. Got it. Those were off. Everything yes. else remained on. Okay. Important fact. I'm not sure. <sighs> okay. So we have a preschool age child? Yes. Are they not smart enough to get in on their own? Gabby, it's not a it's not a meritocracy. No. <laughs> Nothing in life is. No, especially. We don't not have any money the, then. We don't have yeah. any money. Not enough. It doesn't even matter. Yeah. It's like it's a cutthroat world preschool. Yeah. Wow. This is the best one. This is gonna really change my kids' life life. That's what your partner keeps telling you. Okay. Well, I don't know. Suchin, what do you think? Oh God. Um Listen, I've been married somewhere around nine years. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm going to go honest. You know, and I ne- and I never feel like you you can you can be wrong when you go honest. Is I'm going to let this one slide. <laughs> oh, <laughs> now here's my thing. It's nine years, baby. You know, okay. like when you get into that phase of a marriage with kids in preschool, it's it just the 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 parameters of the marriage can change a little bit from when you first walk down the aisle and you have stars in your eyes. If I'm looking over at my partner and he's like, "I did it. I did it for us. I did it for the kid." <laughs> wow. And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. Like I've had my my fill of that time and that part of who I am, this could be an interesting turd. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's like, if that's the politically correct thing to say. I don't know if my husband would be happy, you know, to hear that. But 
I don't know. Why would uh, he be me, unhappy? He gets to hook up with the head of a preschool. And by the way, I we joke about it all the time. My husband and I, we encourage, uh, you know, looking outside and, and, and that sort of thing. It, not in a formal way, but he always says like, you know, um, he would pay so much money to ever see me as a bachelor contestant just to see <laughs> how I would handle that. And anyway, so, but that's just our marriage. And our marriage is weird. Our ma- in our marriage, the only sacred thing is humor. And that's not mm. always the best way to, to handle <laughs> moral questions. You're like, because- how funny was it that you hooked up with this yes. person? How funny His, was it? I, I have a I'll, question. Yes. Does it change the scenario that your kid still doesn't get into the preschool? Come on! <laughs> Look, I don't make these rules. They weren't admitted. You absolutely make the rules. It's your game. I love how she always just makes it worse. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. so, so you can't win this. And both of us no. are trying to find a way out of this. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I also am not a believer that infidelity necessarily is the end of a relationship. I'm not either. Sing it. Sing it. Okay. Learning all about okay. that in one of my classes about how to recover from infidelity. Oh, good. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, then I guess everyone's staying. Congrats yeah. to us. <laughs> and, our, and our kid yeah. doesn't, you know what? Maybe our kid is meant for Montessori. Maybe our kid is, is a, thinks outside the oh, box. Oh, you don't think that's okay? cutthroat? That's true. Seriously. Okay, this is a follow-up because our next game is Are You a Terrible Parent? Okay. Ready? Your child, 12, wants to be a detective when they grow up. Okay. In order to help hone their skills, you tell them that their other parent is missing and they have to help find them. Instead of realizing it is a game, they burst into tears and freak oh. out because their parent is missing. Are you a terrible parent? No. Yes, you didn't uh, tell them it's a game? <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I was, like, waiting for, and then you, what, what happened? You left the door open and let, you know, a stranger, I'm like, what, where's the danger here? Oh, my Lord. No. Jeez. That, that, that. It's that's that's life. Sometimes somebody doesn't explain everything to you all the time so that you can manage your feelings. No, I I know. I I, oh my God. I just students like but, yo kid, life's yes. tough, get a helmet. Like Jesus. You like keep the you keep it going even though they're falling apart and you're like Grit. that's why we have to Grit. find them. Grit. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I think a little fear is okay. You know what I mean? It, 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 it can breed a sense of uh, gratitude and, and, and uh, no, I, I don't know. I mean, no, of course, I don't think, I think what you're saying is I didn't intentionally do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we right. started to play the game. I realized that. I'm like, oh, I made a mistake. Like, no, we're, I thought, I'm sorry. I thought we were playing a game. The other parent is totally fine. Like, it's not a, it's not a big deal. I mean- I've definitely done so much worse. Things that I'm like, oh, probably not necessarily illegal, but not maybe socially acceptable as sure. legal. Do you know? Like, it's just tough. You know, it's tough. It's it's <sighs> tough. It's never ending, and no one tells you. You know, like if you're running into Whole Foods, like, is it okay to leave your kid for just a few minutes while you grab, you know, a carton of right, eggs, right, you know, right. and it's a pandemic and they didn't bring a mask. And I'm like, oh God, do I, again, I'm, 
probably these are hypotheticals. Hypotheticals. These are hypotheticals. Oh my god! I think you should have told them ahead of time it was a game, but I understand that that doesn't that doesn't embolden them with the same amount of um, adrenaline and fear (laughs) that um, we were truly hoping for. Uh, You're supporting their goals. You're pushing them forward. Also, here's the thing: if someone really did go missing, you want the kid to be good in a crisis. Yes. Yeah. If someone really went missing, you want your kid to solve it. That's yeah. That's what you want. I do. I, I I'm a this- stage mom, but for PIs. Yes. <laughs> and and that will come in, li- in handier in life than, you know, yeah. perhaps tap dancing and, you know, pageantry. You know what I mean? Like that may, <laughs> I, I always, this reminds me of, of like the thing that I don't know if it's the right thing, but like mm-hmm. for a while, you know, you have kids and, and I would play these scenarios like, okay, guys, let's, it's time for dinner. Let's do it. Uh, you're at the park. Someone comes up and they say, I got a car full of kittens. <laughs> yeah, my parents used to do that. Can too. you help me? And I'm doing this. And I at some point in the in the process of me thinking that I was like, you know, giving them life tools, I thought, am I traumatizing them unnecessarily? <laughs> so I may not be a good barometer, what I'm saying, for this question in particular at this <laughs> hypothetical, because I don't know the answer to that. Wow. My parents were always like, we would ask you those things of like, if a man comes and says he needs help finding his puppy, what would you do? I would be like, I would help find the yes, puppy. Exactly. And they were like, we are locking you inside. <laughs> parents need to know what kind of kid they got. Yeah, you don't exactly. always yeah. know mm-hmm. until you ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, our final game. Is this a date? You go to the park with your dog and mm-hmm. a book ready to hang out for a while. But then you realize that you forgot to bring a blanket. Someone notices you looking around without a blanket and they say that you can share their blanket since it is very big. Is this a date? They offer you some cheese. How big is their blanket? Picnic picnic blanket. But we have to like, it would be weird not to chit chat. Um, well, that's up to you. Whether or not you think it's a date or not. I mean, it, I think it only matters if you're attracted to the other person, right? That's true. That's not how this is a date works. Um, oh, basically, oh, oh, this is it? Oh. how it works is it's completely determined on whether or not the other person thinks oh, it's a date. Oh, the other person Does thinks it's a date. Does the other person think yeah. it's a date? Irrelevant. Yeah. Sorry. Um, um, <laughs> okay. No, if you poke holes in hypotheticals, the whole thing oh, comes okay, crumbling to the ground. Oh, oh, oh. Is that a date? Uh, no, that's not a date. What do you think, Gabby? I don't think it's a date, but are they cute? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not only are they cute, but they offered you cheese. I feel like you guys haven't paid enough attention to that. To the cheese well, part? And are they single? Yes. And I'm single? Yes. Gabby's like, I'm on a date. <laughs> I'm on a date. Good for me. Do they like my dog? Ooh, that would have been a trick question. Do they like my dog? Well, unfortunately, you have stumbled upon the answer, which is that they are actually on a date with your dog. <laughs> Even better. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Even I've been better. playing this game for hundreds of episodes, baby. <laughs> I nailed it. They like the dog. You're third wheeling. They mm-hmm. just gave you cheese to distract you while they made out with your dog. <laughs> Honestly, that's a mistake on their part because Beans likes nothing more than cheese. Yes. So Beans would forget them and just go to the cheese. Yeah. Me even saying cheese right now is a risk. It's because like, he'll just <laughs> perk up. I'm running in here. Cheese? What's it cheese? Yeah, luckily my dog doesn't know the word for cheese. 
Um, the only words it. that she knows are, come on, let's go. That's it. Aww. Said and in an ASMR so, way. I, I know. can't Because she's right next to me. That's all that she knows. Oh, <laughs> Beans knows high five. Beans knows a bunch of words. She maybe knows treat, but that's it. <laughs> it's literally just, come on, let's go. Like if you say, would you like to go for a walk? Nothing. Yeah. But if it's, you say it, it, those words and those, those words that, that's in that order, that my partner told me I have to stop talking to them and the dog the same way because I'll be like, come on, come, 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 come. Ooh, and they're yeah. like, who do you mean? Like me? Beans will <laughs> think you mean him. I'll be like, come, come. Outside, outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Person. <laughs> Which one? Which one of us? Exactly. <laughs> good boy. Good boy. Yeah. Just to my partner. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, oh. I adore you. Um, before we let our guests go, though, we like to put them on the spot um, and ask them to rate their experience here. Uh, how did you find the podcast? Did you enjoy it? Do you have any notes or critiques? People have given critiques. So if you have them, please let us know. Really? One person, One person did. <laughs> That person is very strange. I mean, lovely, I'm sure. But um, I mean, such a, such, not, I, I can appreciate and love when a conversation is the full range of emotions and we get to be silly and we get to talk about social justice and we get to talk about parenting and we get to talk about queerness and we get to talk about history. So for me, it was it was the full smorgasbord of emotions and that was deeply satisfying. Oh, thank Aww, you. Thank you. And thank you for coming on and for being brilliant and... Um, and I hope that our young listeners take the time to <laughs> learn cool. about MTV and VJs and, and you know, and our history. Our yeah. history. Mm. <laughs> and where can people find you and follow you and see what you're up to now? Yeah. So I'm at Sujin Pak on Instagram. And then I'm also at Add to Cart Pod, which is the podcast that I host with uh, my dear friend Kulop. Amazing. And it's a very, very great podcast all about what we're buying, what we're not buying. Um, and Kulop's great too. So go listen. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production. Hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa DeMonts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And at Allison Raskin and at Emotional Support Lady for Allison and at Gabby Road and at BWM Pod for me, Gabby. Forever! Yeah.